1: With so many things uncertain in our world, health, economy, relationships, many decisions are needing to be made. How do you know the decisions you are making are the best ones, right ones, or just simply better ones? I mean, sometimes best seems just way too far off. I just want a better decision than what I've made. Let me ask you this. What does a godly, wise decision look like? I mean, few of us would doubt that if we made a decision like God would make, that it would be anything but the best decision. And yet, what does that look like? Is a godly decision always wise and restrained and responsible? Or is it always risky and edgy in what we often define as faith-filled? Or is it really neither? These are questions we want to explore today as we continue in our series, One Big Story.
2: As we've seen in the Old Testament so far with Israel, they fall into a pattern of following God, then forgetting God their one true hope, going from making good decisions to making really bad decisions. So in the story today, we'll see that how we make decisions is based on where our hope comes from, not just in theory, but in action. So what does relying on God practically look like in our lives, and how does this reliance on God help us make better, really good decisions? Now in the books of Kings and Chronicles, there's similar accounts of the same events. We see the era of the monarchy in Israel's history. Now having a king was never God's desire for Israel because God wanted to be their king. Samuel warned them that a king would often lead to the people feeling like slaves under a king's power. And some of the kings followed God and others did not.
1: For example, last week we looked at Solomon reflecting on the end of his life and how he chose meaningless things instead of God. Today we look at Solomon's great-grandson Asa and how he lived a life for God but ended poorly because of how he answered the big question of all decisions, am I trusting God or my own wisdom? Because of Solomon's disobedience, God said the kingdom of Israel would be divided by rebellion after his death. And it took place just as God had said. Conflict and division soared, ending up with the kingdom tearing into two. The southern kingdom made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, separated from the northern kingdom, made up of the other ten tribes. The southern kingdom is usually called Judah, and the northern kingdom is usually called Israel. The first king of Judah was Rehoboam. And when he died, his son Abijah ruled for only three years, both of whom did not follow God. And after Abijah, his son Asa became king of Judah. Asa did, it says, what was good in the right and the eyes of the Lord is God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the ashram and commanded Judah to seek the Lord and the God of their fathers and to keep the law and the commandment. He also took out out of all the cities of Judah, the high places and the incense altars and the kingdom had rest under him. He built fortified cities in Judah, it says, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years, for the Lord gave him peace. So although Asa became known for his military strategy, his first war was on the foreign gods that had so quickly invaded Israel. It was Solomon and his foreign wives who reintroduced the nation to these pagan cults. By the time of Asa, the land was riddled with altars stacked in the high points of Judah's mountainous areas, sacred stones used in pagan rituals, and poles dedicated to Asherah, a Canaanite goddess that created many other gods. Asa set out to destroy idolatry in Judah. As king, he commanded Judah to seek the Lord and obey God's laws.
2: So due to Asa choosing to rely on God, there was a great spiritual reformation in the life of God's people, the southern kingdom, Judah, they experienced a period of prosperity that was reminiscent of the reign of Solomon. Asa hoped to live out all of his days in this peace and prosperity unchallenged by any enemy, but he was smart enough to know not to bank on that. Asa not only built strong walls around the towns of Judah, he also built up their military forces. And although Asa's strength was being strategic militarily, we clearly see in his early part of his reign that his heart relied on God even more. From modern-day Ethiopia, a million-man army came to attack Judah, meaning this was a huge army, clearly outnumbering what Judah had. Standing in front of this overwhelming army, Asa didn't give an inspirational speech to his men. He didn't rally his generals, and he didn't redraw a battle plan. Instead, Asa stopped in the middle of the field of the battle, stood between the armies, and cried out to his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you and in your name. We have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God, let not man prevail against you. The result of Asa's prayer was God sweeping in and giving Judah the victory, destroying this much larger, stronger army, and it helped him to ransack the great wealth of that of that country.
1: We see here all the promise given to Solomon in Second Chronicles 7 that we talked about last week came to pass for Asa too. It says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So after this victory, Asa is given a new challenge by a new advisor meant to encourage Asa with a message from God. In 2 Chronicles 15, it says, the spirit of the God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me Asa and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Instead of getting puffed up after this victory, Asa takes this word and further destroyed even more idols, including removing his own mother from her role as queen mother due to her making an image of an asher pole and worshiping it. Asa's early reign included no tolerance policy toward foreign cults. These cults had apparently worked their way back into the fringes of Judah's religious scene. It's not that the people of Judah were refusing to worship God, but they were worshiping God alongside other gods. Mm -hmm. After Asa's campaign to rid the kingdom of idols, Asa decides to rally the people around their new identity in God and God alone. People in the northern kingdom of Israel hear of peace and prosperity in the southern kingdom of Judah, causing actually many to migrate south. I mean, just five years after defeating this huge army from modern day Ethiopia, Asa leads the nation in renewing their faith in God through a tremendous celebration of his goodness. The plunder from that battle five years prior doesn't go to increase Israel's wealth. It is dedicated to God with sacrifices and having a celebration feast for the entire nation. This is not just some casual party, but a celebration remembering the covenant they have with God and with him alone.
2: Now, life goes well for many years, but the tide turns dramatically as we enter the final account of Asa's life. You know, the Bible shows real people with real flaws, and sadly, chapter 16 brings us face to face with those flaws in the life of the reign of Asa. Now, the life of King Asa is both an encouragement and a warning to every Christian. Asa is an example of one who sought God and rested in God alone for most of his life, but then hardened his heart against God in his latter years by relying on man and his own wisdom rather than God. So in year 36 of Asa's peaceful reign, we're told that the king of Israel, Basha, from the northern kingdom goes to war against Judah and Asa. Basha had built a fortified city named Ramah as a kind of a siege and a blockade against Judah so that he could control access to Asa's land. So despite Asa and the kingdom of Judah prospering in every way over the last several decades, Asa makes a critical decision in response to this act of aggression by the northern kingdom. Asa believes that Judah is exposed and in danger.
1: Now, here's where Asa should have stopped and cried out Mm -hmm. to the Lord. But instead of turning to the Lord, Asa turned immediately to his own wisdom. Asa makes a treaty with Aaron, the leader from Syria, by giving gifts from the temple's treasury to have Syria agree to attack Israel from the north and get Basha off Asa's back. And it worked. Mm -hmm. Asa was then able to go and tear down Ramah, the blockade of Judah. Judah is secure, there's peace, and Basha is humiliated. Yet Asa's responses are grievous to God. It reads, at that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Assyria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen, yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. I mean, God would not only have protected Asa from Basha and Israel, he would have given the entire Syrian army into the hand of Asa, but Asa threw it away by trusting in money and his own strategic plans and wisdom instead of God. And look at the hardship that will now come into the peaceful life. Verse 9, you've done foolishly in this, for now, from now on you will have wars. Now, we know from other scriptures, previous leaders in the Old Testament as well. as the New Testament, if we repent, God can turn hardship for our good. But Asa doesn't turn toward God. Instead, he defensively rages. The text says, Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. Asa never repents. Verse 12, In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet. and His disease became Severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. Asa should have died with honor after a long, prosperous reign, but he dies having forgotten the essential of trusting in God first and foremost.
2: How easily this applies to our own life. I mean, things go well for a time, and we, and we start relying on our own, ourselves, our own resources and strength. When there is a physical threat or a relational threat or a financial threat, what do you do? What's your first thought when you fear that you may lose a job or finances? Where do you turn first when there's a threat to your health? To God or to doctors and medicine? Now there's no doubt that doctors and medicines are an absolute gift from God. But where do you bank your hope and trust? Now no doubt Asa still had In God We Trust on his coins, and no doubt that he still went to Sabbath services at the temple. But relying on God was not a clear part of Asa's life anymore. Where was Asa's hope coming from? Where does your hope come from, especially during this time? Where are you relying on something other than God? So we want to look at three lessons that we can learn from Asa. And the first one is pray first, before we do anything. And I know this sounds simple, but this habit of turning toward God first can so easily drift away. Asa began his leadership with a prayer. In that seemingly impossible battle against a million-man army from Ethiopia, Asa humbled himself and he hoped in God. With a very simple prayer, like, help God, you know we need you. And he saw a tremendous victory that was not possible by man's efforts alone. God made it so clear that he would do great things for Asa if Asa would simply trust him and not forsake him. In light of that, later on when we see Asa's failure to rely on God, it just really seems foolish. But it is such an easy path to take, especially when we have success in our lives. If we don't consistently reassess what we are truly relying on, and keep our habit of praying first strong, we'll do the same thing.
1: The second lesson learned from Asa is we see that God is eager to help those who trust him. And God is eager to help. Mm-hmm. It's the very nature of God to show off his power on behalf of people who trust him. God showed up for Asa and Israel in the face of overwhelming odds facing the Ethiopians. That's who he is. We already read one of my favorite promises God mm-hmm. gave to Asa in Second Chronicles sixteen nine. It says that eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless or wholly his toward him. This is like if I say the eyes of the narcotic agents run to and fro through Columbus seeking to capture drug dealers and make the community drug-free. What I'm saying is it's the very nature of a narcotic agent to get drug dealers. Or if I say the eyes of the NFL scouts run to and fro throughout the nation seeking to find the best pro football players. May I say after the NFL draft, these scouts spent well-deserved time in Ohio. What I'm saying is it's the scout's job to seek and find good athletes and to draft them and pay them millions to entertain millions. Therefore, when we read this verse, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show his might on behalf of those whose heart is wholly relying on him, on people who trust him.
2: We know it's God's job. It's his very nature. It's his very longing to display his divine power in the lives of people who trust him. I mean, this is not something God does on weekends. It's not his hobby. It's not something that he does only in the church. This is what God is doing all the time and everywhere. God's eyes are everywhere and always. um, He doesn't want to miss one single opportunity anytime and anywhere to demonstrate his power on behalf of people who rely on him. I mean, this is the God who loved and gave himself for us. This is the God who hears all of your prayers. This is the God who is present where you are right now, and you can trust him. every need that you ever
1: have the third lesson from asa can be seen in the answer to this question the question we began our message with Mm -hmm. what does trust in god versus trust in self and human wisdom look like i mean basically this question asks what does it look like to live faithful lives that reflect we trust in god when we say we want our kids to lead faithful lives how do we let them know what this looks like in everyday life and decisions So when I think of Asa in the latter part of his life, going out and brokering a deal with a foreign leader to help bring his country protection from an urgent threat, it looks like something I could do. I mean, how did Asa get to this place? I can see how easily a lack of reliance on God can happen in small ways in our everyday life. For example, when I sit down to prepare a message, I can do it like writing a paper for seminary, but because I had Asa's failure clearly in mind this week, I stopped and prayed. God, I have a text, an idea, I have a mind, If I rely on those things, all the good things that you've given me, this message is going to be something man can produce. And we don't need another man-made thing. We get man-made ideas all week. What we need is you, God, which is something I cannot produce. We need something that is your power in it, God. So, God, I, I give you my reliance on things. I look to you. I rely on you. Now I use the example of the message because that's one of the things I do, but taking a moment to stop and surrender and ask God is something we can do for anything. What do you do first? It goes back to our first lesson of learning to pray first. We, we turn to trust and trust God first before we lean on our own understanding. But we still have to make a decision. So how do we know when the decisions we're, we're making are God's or, or we're leaning on our own strengths and wisdom? I read a really fascinating article by Perry Newhoff this past week that framed two powerful questions we can ask ourselves as it relates to the big question of today's message. Here they are. Is wisdom killing my trust in God? Question two, does my trust in God disregard all wisdom? So the first question, does my tendency to use wisdom kill my trust in God? I mean, this can be a really troubling question to the list that's real concerning me. I've served in a wide variety of leadership roles, over a few people to over thousands in the past 40 years of ministry experience. I've seen a lot. I've learned a lot from success, from failure, and from times where everything seems somewhere in between success and failure. I'm a lot wiser than I was at 15 or 25 or 35. That experience and wisdom can lead me to choose what I know, though, and what I see and can predict without having to trust God wholeheartedly. I can lean on my own wisdom. I mean, I've seen this, I've done this before, that kind of thinking. Newhoff notes, and and man, can I see this in myself. As we get older, we become more conservative, not necessarily politically speaking. What I mean is we tend to not want to lose what we've gained in terms of finances or relationships or leadership or reputation or success. So we tend to conserve more and risk less. If I was Asa at the end of my life, would I trust God wholeheartedly like I did when I was young facing the Ethiopian horde and not trying to broker a deal? I mean, I'd hope so, but what am I doing now in life? If we look below the surface of that tendency to be more conservative, to risk less, what's really going on? Fear? Tiredness? I mean, fear is clever, and fear can hide behind wisdom. You can get to a certain point in life where you don't take risks that God may be asking you to make, and you choose not to take those risks in the name of being wise or responsible or respectable or being the person everyone looks up to. So you don't want to alienate people by leading change that will create conflict and the possibility of failure or damaging your good reputation. The truth is you don't want to rock the boat. If you examine your motives, you would be honest and say you don't want to lose what you've already gained. You simply don't want to sacrifice what is for the sake of what could be. We can allow wisdom to become a substitute for trusting God, and that's not good. That's why some of us can stop trusting God, because risk looks unwise. I mean, when was the last time you had to trust God for the outcome of something? I mean, really trust God. If you can't remember, it might be a sign you've let wisdom kill your trust in God.
2: The second question, does my trust in God disregard all wisdom? Now, trusting fully in God and not leaning on our own understanding doesn't mean we set aside our intellect. Rather, we submit our intellect to the intellect of God. We let him direct our steps. Asa wasn't supposed to discredit all wisdom, but faith in God doesn't mean that we are always reckless or disregard wisdom. If you are disregarding wisdom entirely, you're likely to hurt other people, and if you hurt others, you're likely to not be faithful to God. So whatever actions trust has us do, it still needs us to look like Jesus, being consistent with his character and with scripture. And if your decision makes you look nothing like Jesus, then it's not from Jesus.
1: Now, it may not be easy to know you're leaning on God or leaning on your own wisdom. So how do you avoid the latter? Well, you do it by creating a habit or many habits in our lives where the first thing we do is surrender our thoughts and hopes to God and ask him to weigh in on our decisions. And then weigh whatever options you see or sense might be from God with wisdom, with scripture, with godly counsel, and you make a decision. And then whatever decision you make, you act upon it in faith, dedicating the decision and the outcome to God. After all, you may not hear God right. You may get it wrong. And even if you get it right, things may not turn out like you hope. So trusting in God in all circumstances means that no matter what happens, you turn to him instead of away. A prayer like that can sound something like this. Maybe God, maybe it's God I'm doing this or or I'm not doing this because I trust in you. If it's wrong, I trust you to show me. If it's right, I trust you to show me. I'm trusting you with the outcome. And then you go for it with confidence and faith.
2: I was encouraged to be more confident in relying on God in my decisions when I was reading the story of the great teacher of ethics, John Kavanaugh. Now, Kavanaugh visited Mother Teresa. Um, He was working there three months at her house of the dying in Calcutta. He was seeking clarity from God on the direction for his future, and she asked him, well, what can I do for you? Well, he asked, well, pray that I have clarity. Mother Teresa said firmly, no, I, I will not do that. He was surprised and he asked her why. She explained, Clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. Taken aback, he said, but you seem to have clarity from God. Mother Teresa laughed, I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. And that hits me. Of course it's great when we have clarity, but often we don't. And what Mother Teresa was saying is striving for clarity puts our attention off on one of the greatest blessings of all, trusting God. Dallas Willard puts it this way, Many people seek to hear God solely as a device for securing their own safety, comfort, and righteousness. So when we're obsessing about getting clarity from God on a decision, we may be using God as a device rather than worshiping Him as God. Trusting God is a risk. But trust in any relationship is its lifeblood, the glue to make it work. We trust in God's mercy, His love, and His ability to bring hope and power to the darkest of places. There is something powerful and beautiful in learning to trust God in the unknown and uncertain. Learning this kind of trust is not um, only something that benefits us, but it's also a form of worship, something that we give to God to show Him how we feel about Him. Brennan Manning describes it this way, The splendor of a human heart that trusts and is loved unconditionally gives God more pleasure than the Westminster Cathedral, the Sistine Chapel, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Van Gogh's Sunflowers, the sight of 10,000 butterflies in flight, or the scent of a million orchids in bloom. Trust is our gift back to God, and he finds it so enchanting that Jesus died for the love of it. Trust is not something that we do just to make sure we're in right relationship with God. Trust is our gift back to God for how much he has loved us. Now, we may not be facing a military army of a million like Asa did, but we are facing a battle. Being in a season with so much uncertainty where we don't know what the future is going to look like on many levels, um, we get a great opportunity to practice trust.
1: So what will you choose? To rely on God first or on your own wisdom and strength? Here are some practical action steps we can take this week. What habits do you have each day that help draw your heart and mind back to trust? Is it praying in the morning before you get out of bed, praying at meals, praying at consistent times helps bring our minds, and our hearts back to remembering. Prayer at a meal isn't just about thanking God for the food, but remembering his involvement in all of our day, his continual provision and goodness. Let it be a time where we are grateful and declare our trust in God. Maybe your habit is a way of acknowledging God throughout the day, whether through music or stopping or asking God to weigh in on a business decision. Maybe it's a prayer of trust you pray when you give your tithe and worship of God. What habits do you have that reorient your life away from relying primarily on your own wisdom and strength, and instead relying primarily on trusting God?
2: These daily habits are so vital to our walk, and I I was thinking about this daily rhythm with God, and I saw this quote yesterday. It said, it's in the valley that we discover who we are, and more importantly, who God is. I was drawn to it, because, I mean, who doesn't want to know God uh, more? And it's true, we can experience God in powerful, life-altering ways in the difficult times. But I think it also communicates a message that God can't show up in awesome ways in the good times. You know, Asa had a beautiful season of peace and prosperity. And if he had done more daily habits of turning to and relying on God when things were good, his heart would most probably have turned to God in the hard times. And we don't want to have to have problems in order to grow closer to God. We don't want to live on a roller coaster of up and downs. The power of habits and daily disciplines help us continually grow closer to God in all of his incredible facets of his nature that bring us peace, freedom, and life.
1: So as we close, I'd like you to think about what images come to mind for you when you think about trusting God. Maybe it's a picture of childlike trust, a child choosing to trust, knowing the parent is more capable, more loving. Our hearts and prayers right now go out, especially to those of you who are facing job loss and change, trying to figure out how to operate your business in this climate. Such challenging decisions that we so desperately need God to show up in. And he will. So let's turn to him together now and pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us turn to you in difficult times, to trust you in everything. Whatever's going on, would you come and would you show us your power and your presence? And would you receive our trust as worship to you, Lord, that you would help us discern between our own wisdom and what you're asking us to do so that we would make better decisions in life, decisions that are in line with you and your power at work for us. So Lord, bless each and every one. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come to us right now, wherever we're at, and that you would speak to us clearly, that you would help us discern clearly the decisions we're facing right now. In Jesus' name. In whatever decision you're facing, big or small, take this moment as we move into the space with some music, with Maddie leading us, to choose to trust God.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag #GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.